episode of the ESG Beat, we will hear from Courtney Keating, the Director of ESG Research for Glass-Lewis, a leading proxy advisor. Today, we will learn about how Glass-Lewis is incorporating environmental and social risk management into its proxy voting and engagement recommendations. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me. So Courtney, you've been a thought leader in corporate sustainability and ESG for a very long time. And today I'd like to focus on your current role at Glass-Lewis. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about Glass-Lewis and the mechanics of what proxy advisors do? Absolutely. Um, So we're quite a niche industry. Um, There's kind of two major players in the industry. It's ourselves and um, ISS institutional shareholder services. And essentially what we do, we provide our clients who are, you know, mainly large institutional investors with research and um, vote recommendations uh, for things that come up at annual and special meetings. Um, Essentially all publicly traded companies have to have meetings where shareholders will elect directors and vote on items like shareholder resolutions, compensation, auditors, um, these types of issues. So we will provide research to those to those shareholders uh, to help them kind of uh, make that job a little bit easier. You know, we have a staff of, you know, hundreds of people that are digging through some very complicated documents, kind of lots of global companies, and then many investors don't have the resources to do that on um, such a large scale. So, you know, we write nearly 30,000 reports every year. Um, that's how many kind of meetings we end up covering. We'll, we'll kind of provide that for, for our clients, and that helps them to make informed decisions uh, when they're voting their proxies. So uh, we, we also help them to actually execute their votes as well, which is kind of a, a whole other can of worms that I'm sure somebody will go into at some point <laughs> later. You know, that's kind of proxy plumbing and that's, you know, making sure that votes get from the investor to the company. But that's something that, you know, we'll, we'll help clients do as well. How has the role of proxy advisors changed in the past five years and even in the past two years with increased engagement between investors and companies and sort of, you know, the engagement occurring throughout the year? Sure. So I think a long time ago, well, even, you know, like a decade ago, I don't think that issues like shareholder proposals, annual meetings um, really had the same kind of weight that they do today. They're not as high profile. They were not something that kind of mainstream investors were necessarily paying attention to. Proxy voting was largely a function of compliance, and it would always be whatever management wanted, and then they would send back the proxy. And I think, you know, Enron actually changed all this. So this is much further back than five years ago, but, you know, kind of starting and 2003, I think everybody started to realize, oh, you know, who, who runs these companies is, is really important. And as we've seen more and more corporate scandals, so everything leading up to like the great financial crisis and, you know, around that, people have really, really been honing in on what's been going on at these companies. I would say that the, the kind of peak time for proxy voting was in uh, around 2010-2011 when um, shareholders were given um, an advisory vote on executive compensation. Shareholders get to, to say yes or no to, it's, a, it's an advisory vote, so it's not necessarily binding, but they get to say whether or not they like 
the, the compensation that's granted to executive officers at companies in the U.S. So essentially, and this has really started a really big dialogue between shareholders and, and companies. And I think all of it has largely been very, very positive. You know, I think that at first, shareholders were not totally sure how to look at these resolutions, but I think, you know, people have been, you know, very nuanced in how they're starting to approach them. You know, as, as the years have gone on, it's been about a decade now since, since that happened. And, you know, the, the conversation has really started to evolve from, you know, well, is the CEO getting paid too much? Is the company, you know, paying adequate attention to issues of human capital management, to environmental and social issues? So it's definitely evolved. We We've been doing more and more engagement with companies. So while our clients are investors, we will meet with the companies that we cover, you know, kind of during our off season. And what I found is over the last three years or so, my team has become much more popular. You know, I used to kind of sit in the corner and pray that somebody would, would want to talk to me about ESG stuff. And, you know, it'd be more than just kind of a passing, oh, well, we recycle, but now it's kind of a, a featured part of the deck. Most companies that we talk to want to talk about their ESG strategies, those types of things. So it really has evolved. And frankly, a lot of the companies that are coming through are talking about comp the way that they talked about ESG, you know, back in the day. So kind of saying, yeah, we tie pay to performance. Okay, let's move on to human capital management. Let's talk about our climate strategies. So that's been really interesting to see kind of a very rapid evolution into, into that. So it's really encouraging to hear that um, companies are more focused on ENS issues. Let's turn to your specific role. What are you responsible for and how does that fit within other functions at Glass Lewis? Sure. So um, I lead the ESG team, which kind of originally started just looking at shareholder resolutions, which are resolutions that are sponsored by shareholders. So the vast majority of proposals that we're looking at and reviewing and making recommendations for our management proposals. So the board is putting them forward. A very small minority of proposals um, are actually submitted by shareholders and often have to do with issues of, you know, environmental issues or social issues. Um, and uh, so that was kind of my team's purview for, for a very long time. More recently, we've kind of expanded our focus. So not only are we covering um, shareholder resolutions, which we do kind of in, in all major markets. So um, increasingly, we're looking at these issues in, in markets like Australia and Europe um, and Japan. But we're also looking at, at how we can incorporate environmental and social issues into other aspects of corporate governance. So um, we're looking at how the board is overseeing environmental and social issues. We're looking at how companies can tie compensation to sustainability. So, you know, kind of how environmental and social issues live within companies' operations kind of outside of these kind of shareholder resolutions. So sometimes they don't always make sense in the context of a company's operations, um, but kind of getting more holistic um, and looking at these issues kind of more broadly is um, is very important. So that's uh, that's where my team is going and and what we do. <laughs> Why do proxy advisors in particular care about ESG? Sure. So we care about ESG because there can be serious 
you know, financial and operational implications from companies that are mismanaging this issue. Our clients are investors and um, investors are kind of there to make money for their clients, right? Um, you know, while, while we all want to kind of do good and, um, you know, make a difference and um, do all those types of things, at the end of the day, you know, the pension funds who are our clients need to return money to the beneficiary so that they can retire. You know, I want to retire someday. Um, and so, you know, I hope that uh, Vanguard makes a nice return for me, right? Um, with all the money I'm putting in. So, you know, our, our contention is that if a company is not necessarily managing certain of these risks, what, you know, we would consider to be material environmental and social risks uh, appropriately, then um, they're placing shareholders' money at risk. Um, so we've seen a number of instances where um, shareholders really have, you know, suffered as a result of companies failing to mitigate environmental and social risks. So um, we're not necessarily coming at this from a values perspective. We're coming at it from a value perspective. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction to make um, because we are kind of looking at it from the operational side, from the financial side, um, you know, in the context of financial materiality. So that is a very important distinction to make. So let's delve more into the values versus value. Can you give me some specific examples of things that, you know, um, perhaps look like they're values driven, but in fact, impact the bottom line? Sure. Um, so I think climate change is kind of a, a huge example of this. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you, you kind of say climate change and, you know, some people may think of, you know, drowning polar bears, but, you know, for some companies, you bring up climate change, and what that means is if they've got operations in low-lying areas, let's say in Texas or certain parts of like India, you know, I think uh, you know that are really prone to um, to storms or um, weather patterns. Um, these these areas can be significantly impacted by the the physical impacts of of climate change. If you're you know heavily dependent on commodities. Um, droughts, flooding, these types of issues can really impact your supply chain. Um, so if you're like a coffee producer, you um, make chocolate or, you know, something along those lines. Um, these are all things that can be really, really impacted by these kind of systematic changes. So I, I definitely kind of put that as, as an issue that I think is financially material to all companies in some form. Um, it, it's going to look different for every single company. So, um, you know, a company's greenhouse gas emissions are not necessarily going to be, um, you know, the, the, the most important thing for every company. Um, you know, for example, um, Bank of America uh, or, you know, any large financial institution, um, their direct GHG emissions probably relatively negligible. They have, you know, mostly office space, you know, business, travel, those types of things. Um, what is impactful is, you know, will, have they adequately taken into account issues of climate change in their financing decisions or in their investment decisions? Because if they haven't, um, then, you know, their, then their, you know, uh, investments could take a really big hit and, um, you know, shareholders could suffer or, you know, certain parts of their business could suffer. So, you know, that's a material uh, issue for them in that 
region. Um, the other area that I would definitely say is um, very value focused is um, human capital management. So how a company is treating its employees, which I think is you know, really, really relevant, um, particularly in light of um, the COVID epidemic, right? Um, that's something that a lot of people have been talking about. Um, you know, companies, there's, there's no company that's not exposed to issues of human capital management risk um, because every company relies on employees to, you know, <laughs> have a business. Um, so, uh, so it's really, really important that um, the companies are managing that appropriately. They can face lawsuits, fines, attrition, um, retention problems, uh, you know, recruitment problems um, if they're not managing their employee base well. Sure. And so one thing that has, um sort of critics point to often is that ESG can be a lot of hand-waving or greenwashing um, on the part of companies. And how do you um, help your investors really recognize when the commitments are being operationalized in a meaningful way? So one important tool I know is through executive compensation or incentive plans. Can you give us a sense of the trends there? Sure. So we're definitely seeing more and more companies um, start to integrate um, sustainability factors into their comp plans, um, which has been really interesting to see. Um, there are companies that are definitely doing it better than others. Um, there are uh, some companies that um, are kind of taking a very, very, very small portion of compensation and making it, you know, a discretionary element um, and saying, you know, this is based on our CSR, uh, you know, perception in the market, which like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, and then, you know, wording like full, um, you know, the full amount, uh, you know, 120% to the executive. Um, so in those cases, it's kind of just like a gimme and it's kind of greenwashing and, you know, sure it makes the you know, company look good because, oh, aren't they paying attention to these issues? But, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of free money and it, you know, doesn't really signal anything. Um, I think, you know, what what increasingly we're looking for companies to do um, is to establish um, financially material metrics and um, establish like really rigorous uh, kind of um, performance goals around those. Um, so, you know, really explain to investors why this is important to you. Um, I'll often see things like, you know, we want the company to be included in um, like the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, which, uh, you know, I'm always like, why? <laughs> like, what, what does that do for you? You know, that's a lot of work. Uh, filling out the survey and getting included, but like, what are, what are you getting out of that? And what does that do for your business? And I, I've never really heard like a great response to that, you know? Um, so, you know, I think that's increasingly where the conversation is going, um, but we haven't gotten there yet. It's still um, predominantly a very, very small portion of a company's um, short-term incentive plan. Um, and it's generally tied to, um, issues like um, issues of safety. Safety is very, very common. And that's obviously, you know, a very financially material topic for a lot of companies. So that, I guess, you know, is kind of the exception here. Um, but, you know, it will be tied to like, you know, stakeholder relations or diversity or, you know, something along those lines um, and, uh, and won't really be tied back to uh, a company's operations in, in a very like meaningful way. 
So the interesting thing about this area and just digging in a bit more into executive compensation, I've noticed that there's been a lot of debate with respect to whether executive compensation goals should be quantitative or qualitative. And of course there is not, you know, Glass-Lewis has, um, you know, repeatedly said that there's no one size fits all approach and it's so nuanced given each individual company. Um, what is your position on qualitative versus quantitative measures? Right. So, you know, I think um, on first blush, you would say, oh, well, of course you want quantitative measures because that would hold an executive accountable for their performance, you know, um, and, and, and that's true to a certain extent. Um, but I do think that there's a really important role for qualitative measures as well, um, you know, particularly in kind of the discretionary elements of this. Um, you know, there's a really famous example after um, the Deepwater Horizon um, explosion um, where Transocean um, basically had like, you know, two safety incidents, one of which killed like 11 people, you know, in the Deepwater Horizon incident. Um, and uh, so they got their full safety payout um, because they had, you know, fewer than like three safety incidents. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure the exact details of it, but it was something along those lines and they ended up getting their full safety payout because they followed um, the exact formulaic approach and, you know, stuck to their quantitative metrics. Um, this is where a qualitative discretionary um, element comes in, you know, and where the board should say, okay, well, um, yeah, you did make, make your uh, numbers technically, um, but like, let's look at the quality of this, right? Um, you know, and I think also, uh, you know, being able to take into account things like, um, you know, the, the COVID epidemic, right? This is the black swan event. This is something nobody saw coming, um, you know, and you don't want to necessarily uh, penalize a, 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 an executive for this. You also don't want to, you know, unjustly reward them um, if uh, if you know their um, compensation was linked to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and you're not running your factories for you know two months because you can't run them um, and that's why all your GHG emissions are low um, you may want to take some discretion there so you know I think that, that that's a really important element I think um, where the problem comes in is when the board says, well, you know, we were looking at um, your CSR performance and, you know, we thought the executive did a really good job and we're really sustainable and that's because of the executive and he's great. So 120%, you get it all. That's where, you know, we start to see a lot of issues. Now let's turn to the present crisis. Amidst COVID-19, uh, we noticed that some companies have limited executive compensation so that they could share in the pain with employees and shareholders. Did this surprise you? Is this a, a widespread trend or is this only happening at the margins and what we're seeing you know, in newspapers? Sure. So we are seeing a number of um, you know, executives uh, take cuts to their um, base salaries. Um, what I would say is, you know, definitely dig a little bit deeper as to like what the numbers are. Um, most executives do not receive the vast majority of their compensation through their base salaries. Um, it is uh, the vast majority of compensation is uh, received through bonuses. Um, so, you know, you know, foregoing 40% of your base salary for uh, 12 weeks is um, you know, it sounds, you know, that, that would be a huge sacrifice for me, for example. Um, but, you know, I'm also not making, you know, $20 million in, you know, bonus 
uh, long-term and short-term bonus, right, annually. Um, so, you know, I definitely think that that's um, something to be looked into. Um, I think we're still too early to really see how this is going to play out. Um, what I would say is, you know, we're, we're kind of at the end um, or very near to the end of the U.S. proxy season right now. Um, so what everybody just saw, what was voted on, um, the, the pay plans that were in proxies and that have been disclosed, um, those were all for the 2019 fiscal year. Um, so those were all for last year, you know, before all this hit. Um, even though, you know, obviously they're voting on it while all this is in full effect. Um, so, you know, while there have been some adjustments made, um, you know, really the results have already been, um, you know, achieved um, in the previous year. Um, so, you know, we're starting to see companies kind of make some changes going forward. Um, we'll see what kind of adjustments they make, what kind of discretion they have for, you know, long-term goals, if they're going to be making um, changes to what type of metrics they want to be using, um, how they're awarding executives, kind of in light of all of these things. Um, it'll it'll definitely be um, be interesting to see. Um, I definitely think that there's a lot of headline risk for a lot of companies, um, just kind of given the staggering employment numbers and um, just kind of what's going on with the economy. I think, you know, there's a lot that's still unknown um, about what's happening, you know, in the next month in the next you know six months um so uh you know i, I think there's a lot that's um, subject to change um but i think next year we'll have a much better um sense of exactly how companies have handled this and what kind of impact it had on their operations and you know therefore what what they've done in response there will be bad actors i you know there already have been bad actors <laughs> there will be more i am sure um but you know at the same time i i know that there are companies that are wanting to respond to this appropriately um so you know i i know we'll see um good examples of that as well so we do have the benefit of you being with us um at the end of this proxy season, what are some things that surprised you both in a positive way and in a negative way with respect to ENS issues? So I think what surprised me, um, so I have not run my numbers yet or anything, um, but we saw a lot of shareholder support for a lot of environmental and social shareholder proposals. We usually only see a handful um, get majority shareholder support. Um, but this year we saw a lot get majority support, um, or at least it feels like it. Um, and a lot of them are climate related. Um, and actually a handful of them were international. So um, we saw a, a Canadian company get a proposal asking them to um, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it's, the company's called Aventive. Um, it's formerly known as Encana, um, a big kind of oil field company. Uh, and uh, they, um, they, they received majority support on, on a shareholder proposal. Um, two Australian companies, one received majority support and one received like 46% support on the exact same shareholder proposal, uh, Woodside Petroleum and Sanchez Energy. Um, so that, that was really exciting to see, um, just, you know, kind of how shareholders are um, kind of taking th these issues uh, internationally. Um, and then, um, you know, within the U.S., you know, J.P. Morgan got really strong support on a climate proposal. Um, I think you could argue about whether or not it got majority support. Um, there's, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> nerdy arguments as to whether or not you can include abstentions when you, <laughs> you know, count vote results. Um, 
So uh, I know this is this is what us proxy nerds uh, fight about. Um, so you know these are you know that got majority support. Um, diversity proposals getting majority support. Uh, climate proposal at like JB Hunt got majority support. Um, so it just kind of felt like um, you know every every time. We turned around another proposal was getting um, majority shareholder support. So um, it was just really exciting to see because that doesn't usually happen. Um, so, you know, that was that was really exciting. I think um, what was not uh, what was kind of disappointing to me was um, there there are a lot of shareholders who, um, you know, definitely are um, mission driven. And, you know, obviously that is, you know, to be respected and, you know, there's a very, very desperately needed place for them in the market. Um, however, you know, kind of not taking into account um, some of the issues that companies are going through right now with the COVID epidemic, I think, um, was like kind of... Um, it was kind of depressing to me, um, so not seeing um, certain proposals that you know may not be material or may not be kind of important in light of kind of what's going on, um, you know, in light of companies having to cut, you know, hundreds of employees or potentially cut hundreds of employees, you know, asking them to then, you know, set scope three emissions reduction targets when they're like a restaurant company, right? Like, you know, th these are the types of things where it's like, well you know, is this material, do we need to be kind of focusing on this right now? Like, is this the right message we want to be sending as a community? Um, you know, we should be kind of more supportive of um, kind of helping these companies function through this time um, so that so that they're there on the other end of this to function as good actors. And, you know, at, at that point, <laughs> set scope three emissions reduction targets and, you know, help eliminate, you know, some of the harmful effects of, of um, you know, what's going on. So, you know, I think that that's, um, that was one of the, just the kind of more depressing things, but, um, you know, I think the vast majority of investors or at least mainstream investors are, are, are they see through that and then they see the importance of focusing on um, kind of materiality, particularly in times of crisis. Um, and so that was uh, obviously good to see. Sure. And that is important that COVID-19 just does present some trade-offs that we didn't see in the bull market. And so it's interesting to see how that's playing out in this proxy season. So turning to my last question, I always like to uh, give our speakers a magic wand. And so if, if you could wave your magic proxy advisor wand and direct how companies govern ENS issues in the next year, what are some pieces of advice that you would give them? Oh, I love this question. The first thing I would do is make sure that companies have board level oversight of environmental and social issues and to spell that out very, very clearly in committee charters. Um, and in proxy statements, because it's easier to find just when it's in proxy statements, but that's just me being selfish. <laughs> I think a focus on um, kind of standardized sustainability disclosure is really, really important. We dig through a lot of sustainability reports, and they are of, you know, varying quality. Um, it can be impossible to find information. Some information is, you know, kind of really buried deep in details and um, doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, it's just not clear. Um, so, you know, a, a focus on kind of standardized, uh, comparable sustainability disclosure. Um, and then I think a continuing focus on human capital management. My, 
what I was saying before COVID hit was, you know, everybody's talking about human capital management. You know, this is all the companies want to talk about, but we're in a very strong labor market. What's going to happen when I turn to a weak labor market? Is it still going to be important to them? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic. I think cautiously optimistic that companies will um, continue to um, make this a priority, but, you know, just making sure that, that that's something that the companies are really looking at um, and that they're continuing to kind of prioritize that um, and make sure that the workers are, are valued and, you know, treated fairly and safely and, you know, with respect. Thank you so much. I do. I can't help myself. I have to ask you about the board oversight piece because <laughs> yes. I'm personally very interested in that. Um, why is board oversight uh, particularly important right now? And in addition to spelling out board oversight of ENS risks and charters, how are other ways that board members can communicate their commitment to ENS oversight? Sure. So it's important as, you know, an investor, I mean, I'm, I, I always say I'm not an investor, but I like to play one on TV. Um, we don't actually invest in companies, um, but I kind of put myself in their shoes. Um, but, you know, as somebody who pretends to be an investor, um, you know, we're entrusting the board to look out for our best interests. Um, and, you know, shareholders elect the board every year, right? So they're accountable to shareholders. Directors are accountable to shareholders. So um, shareholders should have somebody to hold accountable when a company is not uh, performing um, in a manner that they should, or they are, um, you know, kind of falling down, um, you know, on important issues. Um, so, you know, if a company has, uh, you know, had a material, you know, ESG issue um, that they are not addressing satisfactorily, uh, we should be able to hold directors accountable. At the same time, we want to make sure that the the topic is um, on the table. You know, we we want to make sure that that it's on the agenda, that directors are talking about it, that it's part of a strategic conversation, um, and that it's kind of setting the tone at the top of the organization. Um, I think it signals to the rest of the organization that, like, yes, this is an important issue to us. Um, we are taking this into consideration. Um, it's so important to us, in fact, that we have board oversight of it. You know, we have a committee who, in part, is dedicated to um, overseeing issues of um, environmental and social issues, right? Um, so I, I definitely think that that, that um, it, it uh, signals to, to shareholders good things. I think, um, you know, if you kind of look at the, the corporate structure um, and kind of how, um, you know, the, the shareholder paradigm should, should be, um, you know, shareholders should not be managing kind of day-to-day -day operations, right? I mean, the board should not be managing day-to-day -day operations, right? That's management. Right. Um, but, you know, we do want to make sure that, um, you know, shareholders can kind of, um, you know, sit back and trust the company to some degree. So, you know, if, if there's a good governance structure in place and, um, you know, the, the right items are being talked about and there's right accountability structures in place, um, those little nitty gritty items that um, keep coming up in issues of, you know, shareholder proposals and, you know, these, these kind of little items um, that can actually kind of blow up into really big issues um, for companies, um, shareholders don't have to worry about them to the same extent as, as they may, you know, there's not kind of a consistent um, accountability structure. 
um, at the board level. That certainly makes a lot of sense. And I hope that you will be waving your magic wand uh, <laughs> through the next proxy season and many proxy seasons to come. Thank you so much, Courtney, for taking the time to be with us today. We are so grateful for your thought leadership and for your work at Glass Lewis. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.